In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for many graces and blessings we ask. We thank you for this time together to share our uh, faith and all of the things that go with it, really. Uh, Because faith should be expressed not only on Sunday, but every moment of the day. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today we're going to cover one of the really most important subjects and one of the most important events of the Catholic Church in modern times. And it's so changed society in many ways, uh, some good and some hmm, questionable. Uh, but nevertheless, it had a great impact on everyone, not only Catholics, but many other people. Remember that in the, at an ecumenical council, there are a number of uh, non-Catholics invited because we don't want it to be a secret event of any kind. We want a number of people to view what we're doing and why we're doing it. So an ecumenical council is an important event for the world. And that is the way we should look at it. Unfortunately, uh, human beings, what being what they are, you're going to have many people who will object to it uh, regardless of what it is. Regardless of how good it is, there's going to be some objection. And there was a great deal of objection to Vatican II after it came out. Now, it began with a call by Pope John XXIII, who only reigned for a very short time, uh, and he called it, or convoked it as the proper term, in uh, 1959. It took three years, or almost four years, uh, to get it all in order, because there were between 2,500 and 2,800 bishops, including cardinals, uh, that were the former mem- or formal members of this council. And I say between 25 and 2,800 because they weren't all there at the same time, uh, all the time. Uh, and then there were a number of invited guests from other faiths, uh, including Judaism, uh, Buddhism, and a number of others. Uh, But they were non-voting. They were there as oversight or prospective viewers, whatever you want to call them. They were invited guests. They did not have an official voice. But again, the purpose was to make sure that it was not considered a, a secret event. Also, you have to remember that when these articles were originally published, they were published in Latin. The official language of the church 
is still Latin. And all of the articles were written in Latin. And in the handout that I, I have given you here, they are listed in the order in which they were completed and published in Latin. But it took a long time for them to be translated into the various languages around the world and then to be released. It also took a number of years for much of the directions uh, where change was included uh, to be absorbed and understood. Uh, for example, the change of the mass and other liturgies from the Latin to the local language, not only English, but the languages of all of the countries. <clears throat> it took a number of years for that to be worked out because the English that we speak here in the United States and in Canada is a great deal different than the English spoken in Australia and England itself. And so those differences had to be coordinated and in the instructions in the Vatican II documents uh, say that countries such as the United States and Canada that use the same language should get together and coordinate the translation from Latin to the English used in each of those countries. So you can see that it took a number of years uh, before things began to be implemented into a general society. <clears throat> uh, some were implemented much quicker than others. But nevertheless, it took quite a while. In the meantime, when word got out that such changes were being made, of course, you had sides, sides uh, opposed and sides for, and many people arguing and all kinds of problems set up. So night of the 1960s were a rather um, tumultuous time for the church to try to squelch uh, a lot of the discontent that arose from what was supposed to be a significant uh, contribution to the church. Another thing that I'd like to uh, talk about is that if we go back to the Council of Trent, there's a great deal of difference in comparing the two. In fact, you really can't compare the two. The Council of Trent brought together a number of practices with, that had grown up in the church for the thousand years beforehand. And it was in many cases the first time that many documents, uh, many of the rituals, the liturgies, the mask itself was actually, actually documented and put into uh, written form and published. This is now Trent we're talking about because of the printing press being available a hundred years before, there was now the availability to duplicate the written words, the instructions, 
uh, the documents, etc., etc., that came out of Trent. But these were what we would call dogmatic changes because many of the practices that had grown up in that thousand years were not actually put into writing because of the lack of uh, the printing press and so forth. And so they were not considered dogmatic uh, practices of the church. So the Council of Trent was considered mostly uh, a dogmatic council. Now, going forward 400 years, the Vatican II Council was considered a pastoral council. It means that it did not decree any new dogma whatsoever. It did modify some, but it did not change any of the dogmas of the church. It was a pastoral uh, council, meaning that it was intended to help people uh, improve in their understanding of their faith so that their spirituality would be deepened. Pastoral means, and just as it says, uh, something to improve whatever the subject is. And so it was important that, or it is important that you understand that as you read through the documents. And I hope that you will get your copy uh, for yourself, because as I said before, if you read this the documents in a way as if you were praying with the understanding that you really want to know what it is saying and accept what it is saying, then there is no doubt, and I will guarantee that your spirituality will improve significantly. It, you will really, I think, uh, Teresa, Where uh, have you been, uh, started to read the book? That, yeah. yeah. All right. You want to comment on that? Well, this is, I, I have to put it to Goodwill for a dollar. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Man of the Century, it's the story of St. Um, John Paul II, but it's primarily all about Vatican II and its effect on his life and then, of course, everything with Vatican II. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's good. That's what I wanted you to say. Yeah. <laughs> for a beginner, that huh? would, for a beginner that would be intimidated by a book that size, do you have a book that you can recommend? <laughs> How about this size? <laughs> now this is the one I like better. And it's very much like the one that Teresa has. But this is this came out probably one of the first 
to be written in English. Uh, and the language is a little bit mm, stiff. Remember, it was translated from the Latin. When you got to this one, which is written 20 years later, it's a, it smells a, a, a lot flow, uh, more fluently. Yeah, yeah. Uh, besides, this one has a, a synopsis, a brief synopsis of each of the uh, documents before you actually get into them. Uh, the only bad feature is <laughs> this is no longer in print. I actually called I actually called the publisher to see if this was still available, and they said, unfortunately, no. But there are a number, there are a number of, of books that like this one or like the one Teresa has. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Mike. No, no. They, that was always the case. There, yes, there was always non-voting guests included. So, like I said, there were 25 to 28 voting, 25 to 2,800 uh, voting uh, clergy, only clergy. Uh, but there was a, a large number of non-voting people both Catholics and non-Catholics, yeah, for all of the guests, uh, all of the, yes, Mike? A uh, hundred years before, 1858, yeah. Now, 1850, in 1858, Vatican I was to settle some of the disagreements that came out of Trent, particularly it was to clarify the dogma of infallibility because some, uh, I have to admit this, some of the popes and many of the clergy felt that whatever the pope said, he was infallible. And many others disagreed with that. And of course, I think we would all understand uh, that that is not correct. So Vatican I was primarily to settle the dogma of infallibility, which meant that the Pope was infallible when he spoke in matters of faith and morals only. You know, um, you know if he said that this was June the 29th today, uh, he used to be said, well, if he said it, you know, he's infallible, there is, for it's got to be. Well, of course, that's nonsense. And most people recognize that, but it was never clarified until Vatican I. Okay. Uh, Bill, I, I've heard that uh, the infallibility thing has only been invoked twice. Twice, in the last 200 years. But before that, it was invoked many, many times, particularly in the early church uh, when they were trying to get organized. But in the last two years, the last 200 years, it was only invoked twice, and both of those were in reference to the Virgin Mary. 
the first one in 1850 uh, to declare the Immaculate Conception. And the second one was uh, in the early 1900s, 1950 someplace, yeah, uh, on the Assumption of Mary. Yeah. And I think it wasn't, it wasn't uh, because there was any question about it. It was that there was a lot of people trying to put it down. And that is why it went into the form of a dogma. Yeah. It's, it's something that most Catholics believed for centuries. But because there was some particularly concern about it, it finally was decreed in a formal document. Yes. No, no, that was, that's part of the magisterium of the church. The church would take certain statements, just as the one you just mentioned, and sort of look into the depth of those and what is the meaning of that, and then go from there, all right? So the words are one thing, the meaning spreads out, and we have to interpret that in a way that is in line with church teaching. Yes, Conchita? Uh, how long has the Catholic no. Church had the Pope? I'm sorry? How long has the Catholic Church had? Has there always been a Pope, the head of the Catholic Church? Uh, yes, you might say that, all the way from St. Peter. Okay. He wasn't called the Pope, but way back in, in uh, the, the first century. Yeah. But, uh, yes. That okay, was, thank you. Collegiality, yes. That, that kind of, uh, yeah, forces the Pope to work with the bishops, the bishops to work with the priests, and, and all the way to the laity. So, um, so there was a little bit of kind of refining, maybe, of that concept. Well, that was always true. The idea of any time uh, the Pope would speak under the seal of infallibility was after he had met with many people and discussed it and researched it, etc., etc. Yes, and I just meant that I, I'm not sure that the church really, or the concept was communicated that way, that people would think, well, you know, when God is infallible or whatever, um, that that would create a misunderstanding. I agree with you, it was always in place that the Pope acted with, um, you know, with other people, but I don't know that it was necessarily communicated. That, you're right, yes. And the Church has never never done a very good uh, job of uh, informing everybody in a proper way, yes. And unfortunately, 
even in Vatican II, the implementation and the understanding that was disseminated was not the best. And that created a number of problems in itself. Uh, but as I've said many times, the church is divine. The people who run it are not. <laughs> Certainly not. And we have to kind of look at it that way. Um, I think the, the, the Pope and, and the bishops, the curia, etc. in Rome do the best they can. But when it starts getting out into the public, the other countries and so forth, it kind of breaks down from there, uh, which, is, which is unfortunate. But again, I do highly recommend that you get your own copy of um, Vatican II, the documents that, are, that came out of that. Now, after this was, after this was published, these are the 16 official documents of Vatican II. Afterward, there were a number of other documents that stemmed from this. For example, there is one section here on uh, the bishops and their relationship to other bishops. That was the basis for the formation of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So there is a conference where all of the bishops get together every so often and go over uh, many items on a yearly basis. And then there is a uh, head bishop, I forgot what his, what his official title is in that case, uh, but every so often that his term of office is renewed by somebody else. He cannot uh, continue in that role more than one term at a time. Uh, I'd like to go through some of these so that I can talk a little bit about each one of them. Uh, obviously, I wasn't able to condense uh, this down into something that I could give you in an hour and a half. Um, in fact, even the outline that I've given you here covers four pages, and it is a very slim outline. But you can see, I think, if you go through this, that it covers virtually every aspect of church spirituality and church governance that you can imagine. I've tried to think of anything else that is not included here, and I really couldn't come up with anything at all. Um, but the, the thing that I like about this particular book is that it is easy to read. It is not real deep, not real theological, and so forth. And I'll get into some of it. I'll read some of it here to give you an idea. Okay. All right. There are three major documents here. And you can tell by the number of pages. I put the pages up here just to give you an indication of the depth that they have gone to. 
to develop these. And the three major um, documents here are, are the first, the third, and the last one. The continuation, continuation, the Constitution on Sacred Liturgy, the dogmatic constitution on the church itself. And then the last one, which is probably the most important of all, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. The format is a little different there, but nevertheless, it covers, like I said, virtually every aspect of church life and spirituality that one could imagine. All right. What I'd like to do here is to read a little bit of this regarding the constitution of the sacred liturgy. This is in regard to the change of the language in the liturgies from Latin to English. Remember, this was published and approved in 1962. It didn't, re it didn't come to into effect, I think, until around 1970. And that was because the language had to be approved by Rome. That is, the English version of this document had to be approved by Rome uh, for the United States and Canada. Okay. When you say approved by Rome, that's not the Pope? Is that the Cardinal? Or? No, it is officially by the Pope. Yeah. Obviously, it goes through you know, many administrative people there. But officially, it has to come out through the Pope. Yeah. All right. The particular law remaining in force, that is, Latin being the official language of the church, the use of the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rite. But... Since the use of the mother tongue, which is kind of a general term for the local language, uh, whether in the mass, the administration of the sacraments, or other parts of the liturgy, frequent, <coughs> frequently may be of great advantage to the people. The limits of its employment may be extended. This will apply in the first place to the readings and directives, and to some of the prayers and chants according to the regulations on this matter to be laid down separately in subsequent chapters. Not chapters of the book, but subsequent meetings. All right. But you can see that, or listen, uh, and hear that the words, you know, are just normal everyday words. They're not real deep theological terms that you wouldn't understand. 
says, these norms being observed, it is for the competent territorial ecclesiastical authority mentioned in Article 22 to decide whether and to what extent the vernacular language is to be used. This de their decrees are to be approved, that is, confirmed by the apostolic see, just what I just mentioned here. And whatever it seems to be called for, this authority is to consult with bishops of neighboring regions which have the same language, which I mentioned between the United States and Canada and, and many other uh, countries joining each other have a common language. Translations from the Latin text into the mother tongue intended for use in the liturgy must be approved by the competent territorial ecclesiastical authority mentioned above. Now this would be the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. So that is just a, a, a brief sample so you can understand uh, the whole idea of the language. And the idea uh, that it is considered. Now, we poor individuals here that aren't connected to Rome directly and don't have a voice, so we have to wait till the information and the directives filter down through all of the various levels of the church. Sounds like that curly music again. <laughs> I'm sure that's approving what we're saying here, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, continuing on uh, into the next uh, dogmatic constitution on the church. One of these subjects I'd like to read here. Oh, by the way, whenever these documents are referred in writing, they will generally be referred to by their Latin title. And the Latin title always comes from the first one or two or three words in the opening statement, regardless of what they are. So if I went to the first page of this particular document, let me get to the first page. Chapter 1, The Mystery of the Church. Uh, well, I'm proven wrong here. Now, something is just... The Dogmatic Constitution of the Church. The official Latin name is Lumen Gentium. Oh, oh, all right, here it is. Christ is the light of nations. Okay. Light of nations, Lumen Gentium. That's it, translated in from the Latin. Yeah. Because this is so, this sacred synod, gathered together in the Holy Spirit, eagerly desires by proclaiming the gospel to every creature 
to bring the light of Christ to all men, a light brightly visible on the, on the consonants of the church. Since the church is in Christ like a sacrament or as a sign, an instrument both of a very close-knit union with God and of the unity of the whole human race, it desires now to unfold more fully to the faithful of the church and to the whole world its own inner nature and universal mission. This intends to do uh, following this, it intends to do following faithfully the teachings of previous councils. The present day conditions of the world add greater urgency to this work of the church so that all men join more closely uh, today at various social, technical, and cultural ties might also attain fuller unity in Christ. This is the opening statement of this constitution. And as I said, the title in Latin, Lumen Gentium, comes from the first or second major words uh, in this chapter and uh, verse. In other words, Christ is the light of the nations, or to the nations, really. Okay. Technically, it should be, technically, in English grammar, it should be to the nations, but because the Bible uses the term of the nations, uh, most of the documents follow through with that. Yes, Mike? Yes. Well, I'll tell you a little secret about missionaries. They all were so enraptured by the mystique of the Latin that most of them accepted it openly. And of course it was explained to them why it was in Latin. Um, but you know, just a minute, Gene, I see you're anxious to go. Uh, you'd be surprised the number of people that left the church after this came out and after the language was changed. The number of people that left the church because they didn't like the English, they liked the Latin. Even though they didn't understand it, it, it took away the mystique. You see, uh, it took away something that they enjoyed from the liturgies of the church in Latin. Now it's, you know, in their face in English. Uh, and they didn't like that. So you have St. Michael's Church here in Carmichael is one of those that left the Catholic Church partly because of the English. Their mass is in Latin. Yeah. And they do not recognize the Pope. Now, Gene, it's your turn. No, I just wanted to say, we were in English, we were going to mass in Latin. Yeah. And we read the Latin, and we 
Yeah. Yeah. You have brought a lot in the Catholic Church. You weren't a mission. Somebody trying to get you to come. The Catholic Church is saying, we have we were English and we had to have the Latin translation. Yeah. We learned the Mass in Latin. Yeah. The boys, we had to learn the Mass responses in Latin. <laughs> Yeah. And, and it, it was. It added, as I said, it added to the mystique of the, what was going on. And people accepted it that way. Mike? The homily was always in in the local language. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, if if the priest or the provider coordinated the the homily to the readings, even though the readings may have been in Latin, they got the gist of it. I hope then. Yeah. yeah. The readings, the readings were in English, obviously. Yes. Yeah. And the homily would have coordinated with that. Yes. Once in a while, you'll hear bishops speak to both in a homily, both English and Latin, uh, English and Spanish. So we do have some that are still doing language. Oh yes, yeah. Well, that's nothing. That's the still considered the the vernacular of the local language, and it's done because a good number of the, a good percentage of the population uh, still do not understand English, and therefore Spanish is the next most frequent uh, language around here. Anyway, any other question? Okay. Yes. Yes, but that's Saint that's Saint Francis. Yes, now, uh, and I, I've mentioned this before. I'm not putting Saint Michael's down. I'm just telling you that we, as Catholics, cannot go there and take communion or any of the other sacraments and remain in good faith with the Roman Catholic Church because they have <clears throat> separated themselves from Rome. I have a I have a letter from the bishop stating that directly. Yes. So what do they call themselves? Roman Catholic. They say so. Yes. Yeah. But Rome, Roman in that case is used in a rather uh, loosely manner. Yes, sir. Only uh, on special occasions, yes. So you would have to call them to find out. And they do the Tridentine Mass, the way it was done years ago. Um, but if that is only on special occasions. And that is only permitted by approval from the bishop. Uh, it can be done on a regular schedule basis. But that still is... Uh, by permission of the local bishop 
And if the new bishop came in and didn't want St. Francis to do that, he could take that away from them. Yes. Yes. Yes, sir. They do have a head bishop. Uh, you see, it's not, it's not St. Michael's is not the only one. They are a community. Uh, started in uh, Holland by Bishop Lefebvre some time ago. And he was excommunicated because of his teachings and uh, many of the things that he's done. So they do have a organization. Uh, I don't know if they, I don't think they have a pope, but they do have some bishop that is the head. Yeah. Um, it is a fairly large organization. And in some ways you have to give them credit, but uh, we cannot partake of that. I don't, I don't think the church would want to go that far. You know, why? What good would it do? Because it's false advertising if a Roman Catholic is a But they're not selling anything. <laughs> no, but if we go there in our... Oh, well, for many people have, many people do that, unfortunately, mistakenly so. Yeah. But, no, like, well, you know, we had a similar here. We had a Coptic uh, church here in Roseville that used to call them St. Mary's Catholic Coptic Church. They have now since taken the word Catholic out of there, of that sign. But in years ago, when I first came here, 20-some uh, years ago, that was the name of that church. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's, let's move on here a little bit. Again, I think if you go down the list, you can see virtually every imaginable subject is covered. The second one here on the first page uh, on social media. And the church is really very much involved in that. We have a local uh, station here uh, and a regular program. Um, I think it's 15, 16, 20. Yeah, 16, yeah, 16, 20. Um, and I've actually been on that station several times. Um, you, you should see the broadcasting uh, booth that it comes out of. It's not, not much bigger than a walk-in closet. <laughs> But nevertheless, <laughs> all right. dogmatic constitution of the church. I think that is one of the, the most important. And again, it is not difficult to understand. But I'd like you to go through it if you have time. On Christian education, and we're talking about all different forms of education. Oh, wait, I guess I should have turned this over. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, if you go to the back side of the first page here, decree of the Catholic Churches of the Eastern Rite. Now you have to be careful here. We have seven different Eastern Rites that are in 
league with Rome and are sanctioned as Catholic churches. It is not something we shouldn't be able to just jump from one to the other because each rite has some differences. And I think they're very interesting if you go and want to explore. But don't feel that you can just jump from the Roman rite into some of the others. Uh, it also talks about relations with the brethren of separated churches. You have a number of separated uh, Christian churches who call themselves Catholic, uh, such as the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox. They will often refer to themselves as Catholic. Do you know what the word Catholic means? All right. Everybody understand that? The word Catholic comes from the Greek, meaning universal. So, uh, it mentions here relations with, in other words, we should not put other Christian churches down. Actually, you'll never hear me uh, putting another church down. I try to, even when I talk about St. Michael's, to be at least reverent about it. But uh, we have to face facts as well. Okay. Uh, there is a brief decree here on ecumenism. Ecumenism really is in reference to the effort of the Roman Catholic Church to unify all Christian denominations. Um, it is not getting very far, but at least it is trying. Again, we do not put down other Christian churches. Now, you often hear about certain certain denominations that will really be very uh, impolite, for a good word, uh, towards the Catholic Church. Uh, but technically, we as Catholics do not do that. Okay. Decree on the pastoral office of bishops in the church. Remember that... Uh, the Council of Trent had a big to-do about bishops and their relationship to their diocese and not getting into um, wars with other dioceses over church matters. Uh, here, they're much more discreet, but there is the idea of relationships and cooperation between dioceses. Now, a lot of people have asked me, well, what's the difference between a bishop and an archbishop? The only difference is that an archbishop has more work to do <laughs> because he is over local bishops. All right? It's just the division and the structure of the church. We in California have only two archbishops here in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. All of the other bishops take their directives from 
the archbishop within their diocese uh, or archdiocese. We are in the archdiocese of San Francisco. And it's, the dividing line is somewhere around Santa Barbara. Okay. And it is only for administration purposes. An archbishop can't do anything more than, you know, our local bishop here, Bishop Soto. There is nothing spirituality of any kind or blessings or whatever. Uh, there is no difference. It is just uh, organization structure. Well, <laughs> decree of the adaptation and renewal of religious life. This is really kind of important in a way. Uh, it is things that are done to stir up uh, people to actually be all more active and aware of the meanings of their faith. I like this that one very much. Decree on priestly training. Remember, that was one of the big problems of uh, Trent, trying to get priests to all be trained in the same way from the, the same uh, instructions, directives, etc., etc., so that they would all be working in, in the same way. Uh, that is strengthened here in this, and also it is... Um, They've made some major changes. For example, they used to have what they would call the major and the minor seminary. The minor seminary was like the local high school. That's what I went to uh, many years ago. Uh, and it was a great uh, education. It was a great experience. And I, I enjoyed it very much. Unfortunately, I began to uh, uh, take interest in the girl down the street. And uh, <laughs> so those things didn't quite go together, you know. <laughs> but uh, they have done away with that. Uh, they've done away with the minor seminary. You don't find that oh, except for certain cloistered orders will take younger people, but today um, the seminary is, you, it has to be at a college level or above. That is for most of the uh, local seminaries, yes. The parents pays for it up through the first four years as if they were going to any other college. And then after that, the church takes care of them. Yeah. Because uh, after the first four years of college and then two years uh, of, uh, not Latin, but because they uh, theology, two years of theology, then they are ordained as a transitional deacon. And then after a year as transitional deacon, then they are, are ordained. Oh, who pays for the deacons? 
The church takes care of that. Yeah. Okay. Any other? Did you have a question, Prince? Okay. Uh, the decree on priestly training is, is rather interesting. Yeah. It does mention here uh, the major seminaries, the minor seminaries, as I said, was eliminated. Some more pearly music here. Yeah. Okay. Declaration on Christian education. This is education of people other than the priest. Okay. And it takes into consideration all forms of local elementary, high school, and colleges and universities. Remember, it was the Catholic orders that began the university system way back in the fourth or fifth century. Education was done on a sort of one-on-one -on -one basis. A person who was well-educated would agree to take half a dozen uh, men, not women in those days, uh, and educate them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Well, it was the universities who established little communities and had educated men within them and they started the university system by inviting men to come into the uh, monastery for the purpose of getting an education, not necessarily for becoming a priest or a monk. Uh, and that was the start of the university system. So, and many of our educational institutions are still operated by relations with the church. Okay. Constitution on divine revelation. Remember in Protestant Reformation, there was this idea that faith alone came from the Bible alone, and you didn't need anything else. And the church says that that is not true, that faith stands on not only scripture, but tradition and the magisterium, that is the teachings of the church who then takes all of the information that is available, digests it, and puts it out in some uh, written form. The word magisterium actually means teaching authority. A lot of people confuse that with a hierarchy. Hierarchy are, is the structure of men within the church. The magisterium is the teaching authority of the church. Obviously, it has got to be carried out through human beings, but there can be women in that too. Uh, so don't confuse those two terms. Hierarchy is people. Magisterium is teaching. Excuse me. 
Declaration on the Relation of the Church to Non-Christian Religions. There again, we do not permit, or the Roman Catholic Church does not permit us to take communion or involvement, active involvement in any other faith. But we can be a uh, guest, you might say, uh, provided that we do not become actively participants. And there is always this friendly uh, cooperation and relationship with all other faiths, whether they are Christian or not. And this describes what that is. Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation is what I just mentioned before. Uh, revelation is really the overall word of where and how we got our authority to say and do what we do. All right. Divine Revelation comes from God through the Holy Spirit, through the Trinity, through the Church. Declaration on Religious Freedom. Um, obviously, we are free to do what we want in a democracy as Americans, and a lot of people decide that they don't want to do anything, uh, unfortunately. But remember that long line I drew? Uh, I go back to this all the time because, to me, it's very important. All right? There's, there's only one way to go, to the pitchfork or to the cross. At the end, there's, there's no uh, other source, no other place. And... Make up your mind, okay? And what the church is trying to do is to help you make up your mind and to get there. People don't seem to understand that when they don't want anything to do with the organized church, what they're saying is they don't want anything to do with God. And when you think about it, that's really sad because... God has given us our life and all other good things. And what we do to express our differences and our appreciation, not our differences, but our appreciation, is what we do with that life and give it back to God. Um, I have a difficult time when and yet I have some friends that say, well, I don't want anything to do with the church. You know? uh, I'm a good person. I, I do this and I do that. Uh, but I don't want anybody to tell me what to do and how to do it. Well, fine. But when you get to the pearly gates, God is going to say, 
who are you? I don't know you. You didn't let me in, and therefore, why shall I let you in to heaven? Of course, I'm putting it in, you know, in a very simple way here, but essentially, that's what's going to be. If we don't open our mind and our heart to God and be open to him to allow him to work through us to help others, then he's going to say, well, you you did. And, you know, if you think about it, that whole parable in the Gospels about the ten virgins, you know, the five wives and the five foolish ones. The whole idea is preparation. Preparation for getting up here. The whole idea, again, is being in line, in communication, in a study with God himself. And when we do get up to the pearly gates up here. If he should say to us, I don't know you. You never let me in. You never did anything. You weren't concerned with me. You didn't want to bother with me or with my church. Therefore, why should I let you in? That is what hell is all about. We will see the face of God when we die And if he says, you know, I don't want any part of you because you didn't want any part of me, that would set up such anxiety with us that that's all the burning that there would be. But that would be the heart, the mind, the soul burning forever. Forever is a long time. You imagine being told you would never see the face of God again. That is what hell is all about. You don't have to worry about the pitchfork and the, you know the guy with the long union suit on and so forth. That's all nonsense. Hell is the idea of seeing the face of God and being turned away. And it's something that we should think about on a daily basis. Decree on the apostolate of the laity. So we're talking about us right here. Laity as opposed to priests and other religious. So, Vatican II hasn't forgotten us and wants us really to be part of, an active part of the church. That doesn't mean that we have to actually come down here and serve meals or uh, be an usher in the church, but there is something that every single person can do, regardless of age or health or whatever. And that is what it's all about. Being connected to your church in some active way. Even if it is just saying the rosary a day for other members of the church. Uh, You can all do something. 
And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Now, yeah, it, it, would, it would be one of the things by trying to bring them back in. Yes, by all means. But you'd have to read all of this gene before you, you, you get there. <laughs> No, but they do probably publish similar ones. Yeah. This particular edition is not in print. Yeah. Okay. All right. Decree on the mission activity of the church. Well, as you know, America was really uh, populated and educated by the primarily Franciscan missionaries. Uh, in the south and the west and in the northeast it was by the Jesuit missionaries. But the idea of missions now has changed a great deal with television and other forms of communication. Uh, we can reach a lot more people and we don't have to send out uh, missionaries as we did years ago. But the whole idea is still there. The church has a mission, a purpose, to bring people into the church for this purpose, to help us get up that road to the pearly gates. And so the whole idea of the mission of the church really is mentioned in this section here. Every one of these uh, documents, I think, is extremely interesting. Uh, if you flip through this, you can see so much yellow in here that I've highlighted, showing that <laughs> I've read this not, not just once, but many times. <laughs> the decree on the ministry and life of priests. This is something that has never been documented before, uh, with the, a brief exception in Trent. They did insist that the priest had to be a resident member within his diocese. Uh, that was something kind of new and original for the church up to that time, but it became a law of the church for the bishops had to be a resident within their own diocese. Okay. Let me ask you a simple question, which is a little bit digression from that. But you know the difference between a basilica and a cathedral? Yes, that's that's right. A cathedral must have a resident bishop. A basilica is a shrine. The head of that shrine is a rector. The same as the head of a seminary 
is called the rector. Right? But the difference between a cathedral and a basilica is that the basilica is not a parish church. Obviously, it is used in that way, and there are regular masses going on virtually all the time. But it is not a parish church. It is a shrine. A cathedral is a parish church, and it must be manned by a resident bishop. Yes? Is a basilica under a bishop? No. Obviously, the local bishop does have something to say about it. But the rector is the one that runs it. And of course, the Rome. Yes. Yeah. What's that? Yes. Yes. In fact, when I was in the seminary, uh, the rector became the bishop later on. But then he was removed from the seminary. Yeah. Yeah. St. Clair is not a shrine. St. Clair is a parish church. Yeah. Structure, structure, structure. Yeah. Like location, location, location. Okay. Now, the most important of all of these documents is the last one. The pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. And, you know, like I said here, it covers 102 pages. So it covers virtually every detail, every aspect you can possibly think of. And these nine items that I've listed here are only part of them. I only gave you the major sections of each of these because it was just, you know, this would cover several pages more if I went into all of the sub-details. So many of these uh, numbered articles here have sub-details as well. Part two for political community, is that politics or is that political have a different meaning? No, that's that's in reference to the life of uh, the church having to preach and teach. For example, at this past time, uh, if there was some major person voting, uh, I mean, um, campaigning for a major office, who openly declared. Um, abortion and the acceptability and promoting that, the church would have to come in and make a statement. Well, it's not illegal. It does come up against the tax rules. All right? But it's not illegal. And if the church wants to get into a fight with the government over becoming a political voice, uh, but there's ways of doing it. There's ways of doing it. 
And I think in the uh, 10th district where Josh Harder and uh, Jeff Denham went at it tooth and nail, one of the, the commercials against Harder was that he was promoting abortions into the ninth month. Uh, I don't know whether the church actually got involved in that or not, but I think if I were the bishop in that location, I would have gotten into it. Yeah. Well, what good does it do after it's been on there a hundred times, you know? Uh, so, anyways. Um, I think all in all, this is probably the most important event in the modern church, that of Vatican II. Unfortunately, it was not accepted as such. And there was a great deal of opposition. But I don't really see the validity in such opposition. Because when you read this, the intent is for the betterment of everyone. Um, unfortunately, human nature will have a lot of people that won't see it that way. And they will say, well, it could have been this way or it could have been that way instead of what it is. My feeling is that, well, part of the responsibility of the church is to make sure that we all remain saying the same thing. And a lot of priests will... Uh, because they've said the same thing over and over and over, day after day after day, they start not looking at the lectionary or, or the, it's not called, it's called secondary, I think, or whatever the big book is. Um, they start getting away from that, and little by little they start putting their own words in. I've seen that happen. I know of, of one priest in uh, Maryland that says virtually the whole mass from memory. And the church says, uh-uh. We want everybody to say the same thing. And so what they did was they made a few minor changes because they wanted, again, everybody to say the same thing when they were praying as a community. All right. It did not... Uh, it came out of Rome, uh, but it was something that was needed throughout the world, really. Uh, little little uh, differences in wording that crept into the liturgies. Yes, Conchita? Yes, yes, that was a political movement started in South America, and for a while it was okay. It got a little out of hand. Uh, and it started getting into um, putting certain poor people over the others. Uh, and the church finally had to say no. Uh, we sympathize with the poor, but not in that way. And so liberation theology was put down. That was one of uh, uh, 
you know, St. Oscar Romero's uh, big thing. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think he probably was in the beginning of that, but it did get out of hand and it got contrary to some of the other teachings of the church. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, I hope you've enjoyed this kind of, of lecture, uh, and I hope you will get your copy on your own. Um, maybe you can go to uh, the used bookstore or whatever and find a, a used copy. Uh, they are expensive. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you whenever we can get together and discuss our faith in a peaceful and safe manner. So we ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forward to help us to take to heart what we've learned today and what we will continue to learn uh, by reading the documents of Vatican II. So we ask your blessing on our efforts. We give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name.